one of the things that I've found the most difficult about having an immigrant identity is that I never feel like I can stop and I never feel at home. It's not a thing that'll ever change. That's the immigrant DNA. It's a blessing, but it's also, it's, uh, it's complex. My name is Mark Bamuti Joseph. I am a poet. I'm a dad, I'm an educator. I am Camila Forbes. I am a storyteller, a director, a producer, a wife, a mother, a daughter, and the executive producer of the Apollo Theater. My name is Paolo Pristini. I'm a composer, I'm a mother, a wife, and a collaborator. For the Kennedy Center. For National Sawdust. For the Apollo Theater. This This is is Active Hope. Hope. Hey, hey. Hi. Good to see you both. I feel like every time we get together, a million historic things have happened. Mm -hmm. And I greet you with a tender heart. That word tender is really critical right now. Right, right. I mean, for all of us to just have grace for one another, you know, to, in order to heal. Healing present progressive healing is active and and enduring wow well on the topic of healing i just want to share that we have some beautiful music coming up in today's episode Mm. we're going to hear performances by mago serrera vj Iyer, and wadada leo smith and we'll feature music by you paula and by carlos simon so paula Do you want to tell us a little bit about today's episode? This this episode, I feel, is very much about regeneration. And it's also very personal, as you both know. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I I just thank you in advance for bearing with me for the past month and a half, as I've told you Mm -hmm. so much about why the border is is so personal to me. Mm -hmm. As a child, I landed on the U.S.-Mexico border in a town called Nogales, It was something about that town, the division, the disparate synergies, the Mm. wishes, the dreams, the songs, the struggles, that has essentially informed every aspect of my DNA. Mm. We had immigrated from Italy for a life on the border. My father is an instrument and reed maker, Mm -hmm. and the cane that's used for his product is actually grown in northern Mexico. And the promise for a better future was there. But as soon as we arrived, my parents separated. And my mother and I began our life, and it had a lot of uncertainty. I remember to this day, she packed our car with all of our belongings to try and make it in California. And I remember believing that everything I needed was in that car. And there was a song, and it was, you're my number one. We, we soon made it back to the border. We didn't make it. But she succeeded at the immigrant stream. She had to build new roots, mm-hmm. and that has informed how I approach my life to this day. So today, we're going to take a picture of what it means to be on the border, from immigration to migration, from fleeing to freedom, to being stuck, and all of the realities. Bumudu, you said something last week that I loved, which is that the immigrant DNA is powered by hope, but it's also powered by sacrifice, and at times by secrecy. Mm. And immigration, which is a national issue, is this border town's everyday issue, but they don't get that support. Just in in March, they recorded 19,000 children trying to pass the border, fleeing from poverty and violence. I really just don't think that as a country that it's built on immigration, on migration, on stolen land, on on bodies, we just can't, can't turn a blind eye. So I'm really excited to build with both of you a deeper sense of understanding of the borders, the empathy that's needed, and what translations can we find to institution building in the name of better systems. So today, I want to ask both of you what borders mean to you in your practice and as human beings. Wow. Um, First of all, thank you for your bravery. Hmm. The idea of borders are definitely geographical. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. When you ask that question, I just can't help but think of hip hop. Mm -hmm. You know, planet hip hop, planet rock as a borderless nation Mm -hmm. of culture makers. Yeah. You know, with hip hop in particular, it's a culture that emerged because of very, very sharply drawn borders of gang territories in Mm. the South Bronx. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And without those sharp borders and the intra-communal borders and the need to find peace because mm. of broader crossings mm. between black and brown folks, maybe we don't have mm. the culture that has changed my life. Mm. But then I also think about diaspora mm. and sounds like Bob Marley <laughs> and sounds like Fela Kuti, sounds like Miriam Makiba. Mm-hmm. Sounds like Lauren Hill. And maybe that's where art lives, is that there are all these sharply drawn borders, and we'll talk mm-hmm. about the borders of our own families in, in a minute. But that is the thing about the art that I love and maybe the mm-hmm. cultural practice that I come from, is mm-hmm. that it is, if it's not borderless, it does a pretty good job of obliterating borders, mm-hmm. for which I'm really thankful. Mm-hmm. Cam, how about you? Man, so beautifully said. You know, and Paula, thank you for that introduction to the concept of borders and a geographic standpoint, because I do think that me personally, I've always resisted silos, mm-hmm. resisted restriction, you know, and it's interesting being an artist within an institution that exists against categories, categorical mm-hmm. Definitions, categorical silos, even from the sense of departmental. I'm always interested in the conversation. Well, we are all here as creative beings to add to the stew that what it is that we're building is is art and order and culture to move us forward. So whether you are in finance, (laughs) development, Mm -hmm. marketing, PR, how do we how do we build a, a cultural ecosystem, even within the institution, that looks like a creative collaboration within a rehearsal hall or a room Mm -hmm. of my dreams, right? Yeah. I'm always interested in that conversation. You know, I love that moment in a collaboration where you trust somebody and you give something over. I always have a vision for what something's going to look like, but I know that the minute I give it over, that that person's going to take it into some completely different place. And I I think that kind of sense of wonder and of abandon and of trust Mm. is so crucial. One clip that we're about to hear is I traveled actually to the border, to Nogales this past month, Mm. uh, to visit a friend of mine named Evan Corey. And Mm. Evan graduated from Juilliard in piano. And I had heard that he had gone back to Nogales to start a whole bunch of different things. And I was really curious to catch up with him. And we're going to actually hear Mago Serrera performing Gracias a la Vida. And this is a little snapshot of life on the border and of this beautiful human being who's trying to regenerate through art. Gracias a la vida Que me ha dado tanto yeah. Me dio dos luceros Que cuando los abro Before I moved back to Nogales, I was in New York City for 13 years. And as far as my decision to move back, while living in New York, I just felt more and more drawn to to home. And the whole reason I was able to study piano and music was because of our family stores that supported that journey. So eventually the opportunity came to move back. I was at a crossroads and I I just went for it. And it's been one of the best decisions of my life where I finally feel like I'm digging my feet into my community and growing as a person, as an artist. We're at our family store called Corey's. It's a bridal shop. And um, we've served this area for many decades. My grandparents started the, the store. And we are steps from, from the border here. Um, this is a, one of the pedestrian crossings that is only for pedestrians, no no vehicles. And we've noticed that it's a very popular spot for families to come together because during the pandemic, the border has been closed. So Mexican citizens are not able to cross to this side of, of the border. So that means families are separated, friends, couples, where one, one person's on the other side and one, so they're coming here to, to meet and talk. and. I'm not certain of it, but I, th- I think not all of the border crossings have the ability to see through like this. So I think there's people coming from all over the state probably, that this is their meeting point where they can actually see and potentially touch each other. And right before the border closed, we 
we got notice that it was going to happen. And our store, you know, the all of the bridal dresses are usually put on layaway months in advance, and people slowly build up to their wedding date. And so when we got news that the border was closing, we had to call all of the brides with their dresses that are on layaway here in Mexico to, you know, come get your dresses now because we don't know what's going to happen. And there was um, a rush of brides and. And we're still actually coordinating with brides so that maybe a cousin that lives on this side can pick up for them and take it over there. And so, you know, our little bridal store has a very unique perspective. Playas y desiertos, montañas y llanos. There's a lot going on in this border community which doesn't get a lot of good attention often in the country. You know, you hear about the border and it's always about issues with international border crisis or drugs or trafficking of all kinds and really this community is so much more than that. Recently in 2018 there was um, razor wire attached to the border which was one of the most aggressive things we've seen happen here at the border and what's interesting is that shortly after that a bunch of artists got together and opened up La Linea Art Studio. So it was a direct response, I think, because we were thinking of ways to, to do maybe some public art that commented on the fact that we don't agree with the razor wire. And little by little, it evolved to like, hey, let's open up an art space. And um, one thing leads to the next. So it's you got to you got to make changes one step at a time. And I think that the connection that we can have between friends and, and fellow artists I really appreciate more than ever now. The human condition makes us strive for connection between each other and and that gives me hope. So beautiful. There's so, so much to take beautiful. there. I'm so drawn by the theme of intersection, right? Mm-hmm. How he talked about that space at the intersection of a bridal shop. Like, how poetic is that, right? Yeah. Love stories and mm. the consummation of love, mm-hmm. birth stories, and the possibility inherent in a new life. Mm-hmm. There, there are certain things that are just part of the human experience that a border cannot cross. Mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. that is among the more violent aspects of borders is that they are dehumanizing. They eliminate the narrative. I, I know I always go to literature, but it's a little like opening up a 300-page novel on page 270 <laughs> and a character mm-hmm. is drowning. Mm-hmm. You begin not even in the middle. You begin at the end of the narrative. And everything mm-hmm. that's led up to that place yeah. of distress sure. and of, of extreme struggle is taken out of the story. But uh, a physical place like a bridal shop, you have a sense of a love that brought you to that place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A, a bridal shop is a place of arrival because people have hope in one another, because sure. people feel compelled to build a life together. So it's it's the middle of the story, but it's also the beginning. Right. Totally. Right. Totally. At the intersection in which families are separated, right? At the intersection. <laughs> well, in so which, it, that's right? the thing, right? On mm. the very granular level, you know, Nogales has a twin city. And because of this border closing for a year, the economy essentially has completely dried up. But the experiment of the idea of a twin city crossing two countries, what could it look like if it had actually, you know, if it could thrive? And I think what I really, what I take from, you know, what he says is that it's change one step at a time. Mm-hmm. It's going back to your community. It's saying, mm-hmm. yes, I could be in New York, but but I'm actually going to go here because I'm needed here. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that I've found the most difficult about having an immigrant identity is that I never feel like I can stop and I never feel at home. Yeah, It's not a thing that'll ever change. That's the immigrant yeah. DNA. 
it's the blessing because you get to see this kind of intersectionality that you're both talking about and you get to see sure. all these sides, mm-hmm. but it's also, it's, uh, it's complex. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Hmm. Now, I, I've been thinking about my institution, which not being from Washington, D.C., and, and I should acknowledge that the Kennedy Center sits on unceded Piscataway territory, not being from here. People say, well, the Kennedy Center is geographically isolated. And I'm like, no, it's not. You just take the blue line or the orange line. It's right there. But it is a place that's, in some cases, psychologically isolated. Mm-hmm. There's a, a desire for our institution to actually soften its white marble so that it has more of a sense of home. And that mm. balance between the nomadic, the itinerant, the home to a few, and then home to many, a place of belonging where as a cultural immigrant, you can find a, a different sense of home in this new place is a lot of the work that we're doing in social impact and a lot of the work, I think, of 21st century arts institutions right. that may also feel bordered within themselves. Right. And we're sure. trying to break that down. For necessity of existence, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think about the difference of borders, I think, of breaking down borders in all of our institutions. But as you talk about the Kennedy Center, I think about that as relationship, even from the Apollo's perspective, where there's Mm -hmm. a border of legacy and history Mm -hmm. that is so rich and vibrant and a true definer. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, if we think about, you know, how its porousness is what brought people to the institution and considered it home. Mm -hmm. The fact that the doors were open to all Black performers at a time Mm. in which they could not perform on any other stage in New York Mm -hmm. City. So, you know, we we are in the crux of a very similar challenge Mm. in that how do we create space now for this generation of performers mm. that is not independent of our history and legacy, mm. but inclusive, right? Mm. So it's um interesting, I think, challenge when we talk about borders, as we think about movement um, building, as we think about like, and, and just movements through time. Right. Yeah. You just heard passages composed and performed by Vijay Iyer and Wadada Leo Smith. Paolo, we've been talking a lot about cultural borders and institutional borders. Both Camila and I are children of immigrants, mm-hmm. and you yourself immigrated um, to this country. I, I, I feel so honored to be close to your story. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about your recent experience and this like very true harsh reality of a political border particularly as we're experiencing it now in 2021 it's interesting that you asked me that because at the moment i feel a little not grounded in myself Mm. in the sense that i think there are other things that need attention right now and i want to be part of that 
changed. So it's funny because like being able to express what I did at the opening feels really important because I, I don't often talk about, you know, about my story. I'm as a composer, you know, you're not a performer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I just say it through right. my music, <laughs> but it felt really good to acknowledge that that story exists. Um, mm. But, you know, something happened recently that really moved me. And I was in, I think I told you both that as part of going down to Arizona, we drove, my husband and I drove through the South. So we drove through Alabama and we went to Montgomery, went to Selma. We saw the Legacy Museum. But the purpose of the stop in South Carolina was that my husband, who's half Black and half Japanese, has always felt like a satellite. You know, he never knew his family. And he has been looking for family for years on 23andMe. And he found them. And they were the most extraordinary, welcoming, beautiful people. It made me realize how privileged I was to want to flee. And I just want to sit in that for a second because like, I, I want to escape. That's in my DNA. I always want to run. I'm not great at keeping Mm -hmm. in touch. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden to see his joy in Mm -hmm. finding second, third cousins removed when I have it and I keep running was like, Mm -hmm. oh, that's privilege. (laughs) Let's Mm -hmm. look at that fair and square. That then I have to address that psychologically, we're not going to do here. (laughs) We can do that one day over drinks. (laughs) So when you ask me about being an immigrant now, I mean, Mm -hmm. to me, it's like, I'm lucky. My story is a lucky immigrant story, let's face it. But there are many unlucky stories. And like the week we're living in, which it seems that every time we meet, there's you know, it's just the times we're living in it. There's always something huge. It's that's where the energy is devoted. Yeah. Hmm. Does that make Can, sense? It, yeah. it makes all the sense. Total sense. Yeah. Is it time sure. to announce our special guest? Yeah, let's do is. that. <laughs> I think it is. All right. So I was bowled over by Regina Romero. I had been following her um, for many years. And I'm just excited to share this interview. Um, Before becoming the first Latina mayor of Tucson, Arizona, she was on the city council where she led Tucson in becoming an immigrant welcoming city and successfully led colleagues in passing a no border wall resolution. As mayor, she has believed deeply in delivering equity, inclusion, and opportunity for all, regardless of race, ethnicity, gender identity, sexual orientation, immigration status, religion, or background. And she has done incredible things, including prioritizing the creation of the City Race and Social Justice Initiative, including an immigrant advancement agenda, and something that I find particularly incredible because it hasn't been done, prioritizing formalizing the governmental relationships with the Tohono O'odham and Pascua Yaqui tribes. It is such an honor to have Mayor Regina Romero here with us on our third Active Hope podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a, it's a real honor. Thank you so much for having me, Paola. So I have just a few questions, and I really want to start with this idea um, of transformation. You ran for office on a platform focused on climate change, city infrastructure, and the economy, and then March 2020 happens. So I'm wondering, in what ways has COVID forced you to evolve um, your approach and your platform and search for new solutions? And how can we as leaders learn about adaptability and also about opposition and how to deal with it? Yes, you're absolutely correct. I ran on a platform of climate change and climate action for the city of Tucson. And when the pandemic hit and we had to make absolutely incredibly difficult decisions, we really connected back to science, right? And that's one thing that this pandemic and climate change have in common, that it is science that should be dictating to us the policymakers, the decision makers, in terms of where we go. And to be perfectly frank, the pandemic really highlighted the ills that society has been suffering from for so long, the inequities, discrepancies, but yet the pandemic put a a huge uh, spotlight on the inequities that we knew we had and we had not acted as, as a country. You know, a focus of inclusion has been such an essential part um, of your life and of your platform. And one of the things I love is that you've been um, especially active in formalizing governmental relationships with the representatives uh, from the Tohono O'odham and the Pasquayaki nations. And I want to know, what do those efforts look like? And in your eyes, how can this multicultural approach lead um, to a better understanding and a better, if I can say, American identity? 
you know, I'm the definition of intersectional, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Layers of identity as a woman and in a, in a brown woman of color, as a, a, a first generation daughter of immigrants, living on the borderlands. Really, I grew up speaking Spanish and then went into school and learned English at school. And so the identity that I carry is multifaceted and connected to the borderlands and connected to the two countries where I grew up, right? Sonora, Mexico, and Arizona. And the wonderful thing about it is that the Sonoran Desert covers two countries. It doesn't care about artificial borders. And so when I tell people, like my family has been living in the Sonoran Desert for six generations now, people are surprised. But when I say I'm the daughter of immigrants, they're like, what is she talking about? (laughs) So the Sonoran Desert covers both Arizona and Sonora. And the reason that is important is because in the Sonoran Desert, our identity is also connected to the Yaqui people and the Tohono O'odham people. And the respect that we have, my family at least, has for the knowledge and the culture and the language and the history of the connection that the Yaqui people and the Tohono O'odham people have to this land is very, very important. And so for me, as I make policy decisions, I want to make sure that the recognition of the original people of this land is front and center in how we view the borderlands and how we view Tucson, Arizona, which by the way, the word Tucson is derived by a Tohono O'odham word. It means black mountain. It's chuk chuk. Mm. And so we are in the shadow of the Black Mountain as a city. That's where our city was born, Chukchon. And so in my relationship building with the chairman of the Basquayaki tribe and the Tohono O'odham Nation, I want to recognize their flags in our city hall. I want to recognize their land. And that we in Tucson, we are just a visitor here in their native land. That's such an important role model, really, for the rest of the country. That really leads me to this idea of living on the border and how that infuses your daily practice and your life. But my question is, how do sanctuary practices thread it in? And how do we support border communities like Nogales that are often really at the forefront of national issues and have so little you know, infrastructure? Well, I was born in Yuma and grew up in Summerton, Arizona, and that was 10 minutes away from the border. I have family on both sides of the border and in Sonora and and in Arizona. And as I was growing up, we would leave, and in 10 minutes, we were visiting family on the other side of the border, right? Yeah. And, you know, we wanted to go eat really delicious tacos. And then we just got on our cars and visited family and went to the taquito place and the yeah. hot dog place. And when I approach immigration issues, I approach it as like, you know, nobody in Washington, D.C. understands the life on the border because they don't live it and they don't understand that it is one community. When I was a kid, there was no wall like that. No, it it didn't exist in this way. You know, we used to call it the Disney wall when it went up Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it was just so out of this world that this could happen. Yeah. And most of the border didn't have like a wall, right? It was just like, you know, and you'd move back and forth from both sides of the border, the family on both sides. So as I approach immigration, being first generation born here, I, I connect to family. And I do not see immigrants and asylum seekers as others. I see them as of family on the other side. And so the city of Tucson has a rich history of 
being a sanctuary city. We are an original sanctuary city. This is where it was born. And I approach our policy as a city of Tucson. When I sat on the council, we declared our city an immigrant welcoming community. We changed policy in the face of SB 1070. And we really gave direction to our police department and our city manager to make policy that didn't otherize right. immigrants in our community, that included them as residents of our city. I want to take another question. This one is a little bit personal. Every time we do these episodes, we like to have a prompt, an artistic prompt. And so there was one that actually I really wanted to show you. It just um, aired on PBS. And it's a documentary that I co-produced with a good friend of mine named Murat Ayubavlu. And we worked with a conservationist who's really specialized in the desert and ecology. And the work is called The Colorado. And it spans in nine chapters the importance of the Colorado River through history. And of course, our drinking water here in Arizona is 90% from the Colorado River. The film is actually narrated by the Oscar winner Mark Rylance. And this chapter talks about the importance of water to farming, but it frames it through personal stories. And so this is a story that could have been many stories about a young man who had the ability to fly like a bird in terms of his running. He had been accepted into the Olympics, but at this moment, he stays to take care of his mother. Just a few statistics that I want to read for our audience before we see the clip. One in eight Arizona residents is a first-generation immigrant. Over a quarter million U.S. citizens in Arizona live with at least one family member who is undocumented. And one in six Arizona workers is an immigrant, and state industries like agriculture and construction depend on an even greater share of immigrants. So the question after you listen to these two minutes is, what was growing up like with immigrant parents as farmers, and what has it meant to you as a leader? Coach, I told her you'd take me to college to run track and maybe go far, she said. wonderful and powerful. (laughs) That was wonderful and powerful. Well, you know, I see the faces that I saw growing up, right? Mm -hmm. I worked in the fields myself. A lot of people don't know that. I did not know that. Um, And so helping my parents and Mm -hmm. seeing my siblings, I'm the youngest of six siblings, and then just all the equipment that you have to use to be able to do the job right, cover yourself up, gloves and 
you know, I did that. I I picked um, lettuce and my siblings did as well. And if we couldn't because we were younger, we helped. Either we were on the sidelines because we had no daycare, right? Or we helped at home with all of it. But I remember growing up and living that life, which is a very respectable, by the way, very respectable. So much dignity. And and, and dignity and hard. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Hard, hard work. And really, it was working on the fields that convinced me to go to college. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's incredibly important work. Um, something that the pandemic also made us realize, right, that the front line, that the people that are actually feeding us day in, day out, are not valued enough. No, and they're often treated as invisible. Um, Are not paid well, they don't have health insurance, they're not taken Mm -hmm. care of, and it's incredibly difficult work. Do you see a direct, I mean, it was, you know, just in terms of this role model that you are for so many women in terms of being a first, right? First Latina mayor of Tucson and what that means. And I'm wondering if you see a direct line from your experiences in the past. And is there a direct line in terms of where you are now as a leader? There's a direct line in that I never really, when I was growing up, I'd never really imagined myself to be an elected official, right? Or a leader, the direct line is that I've never been able to lose, you know, my dad passed away about five years ago, but he always would tell us, his kids, like, don't ever forget where you come from because you will know where you need to go if you know where you come from. And so as I grew up and developed myself, that core uh, never really has left me and has always dictated where I go in, in there. And, and that includes even, you know, even art, the love of art, the love of nature is something that I grew up with. And in those long 12, 14 hour days in the fields, there was always time for people to sing and mm-hmm. bring out a guitar and, and focus on that art and being able to bring life to the people that were on the fields um, it's all connected, but I never really dreamed of being an elected official, never really dreamed of ever once being the mayor of the city of Tucson, being the first woman. Um, so it's just one know, step at a time. And I stand on the shoulders of so many other women that I love and admire that came before me. So it is truly an honor. My last question to you is, where are you finding hope right now? I am finding hope in uh, what we have in front of us, that we have the first woman as vice president and woman of color, daughter of immigrants that understands what we carry and the value that we bring into our country. I'm hopeful that there's investment in working families and children, in art, in, in, in education. I'm hopeful that we have a president that believes in climate change and wants to invest in resiliency and and green job creation and really doing something about what the effects of climate change are in communities of color and low-income communities uh, who are at the front lines of receiving the impact of climate change. I'm hopeful for those things and being in a position of being mayor of being able to effect change in our city that will take us in a progressive direction. It's um, so exciting. And, and, and being able to have a front and center the equity issue that affects this country and so many people in so many different ways. And is so needed here at the border. So yes. we are very yes. lucky to have you and uh, so lucky to have you on our podcast. And fue un honor inmenso. Espero de conocerte un día. Muchas gracias, Paola. Thank you so much. Wow. She's a bright light. So, so incredible. (laughs) So many gems. Right. So many. Yeah. Just really profound. You know, it's it's funny as as she talks and, and this idea of she exemplified how movement then influences policy. 
mm-hmm. just in her body, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the way that our work is, when we think about cultural movements, cultural movements are about movement that births culture. If we think about great migration, jazz, right? Mm-hmm. Um, shoot, you know, I mean, hip hop even, right? Mm-hmm. But how this was a really direct tie to policy change within her DNA. Right. That's mm-hmm. that was it was just powerful and very straightforward, just so so clear cut, mm-hmm. really powerful. And there was a purity in her wanting to lead, which I I, I yeah. was very drawn to because so often people want to lead because of power. Yes. And what you see instead in her is no, I'm actually doing this for my community. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that right. I thought was just so just, I mean, it's such a thing, I think, for people who are in leadership positions to really think about that you are in a service position. Yeah, that's right. You're not in a power position. You're serving. That's right. And that's you have right. to know who you're serving mm-hmm. deeply. Mm-hmm. That's right. The, the idea, I, I agree with, with both of you and Camila, this observation of um, humanity as policy. Mm. That, um, yeah. That, yeah. And the dignity of labor. Yeah. Oh. I, uh, and Camila knows this because I've been under her care as a as a director. When I was a younger artist, sweat was very much a part of my aesthetic. <laughs> sweat was part of my belief system mm-hmm. as an artist that there was something about the chemical transformation that was taking place in my body that mirrored the psychological and spiritual transformation that mm. I was trying to pull out of the narrative. There was something about me kind of falling apart that was also part of what I was trying to convey and that is due in large part to ancestral movement right and ancestral migration a mirroring of the sweat mm-hmm. and the labor of the people that came mm-hmm. before me so when she talked mm-hmm. about picking lettuce and mm-hmm. and you know we we're we're closer to the equator you know people get pissed off because they're in air-conditioned scenarios and they have to wear masks. Well, try being under the sun (laughs) and picking cotton or tobacco or lettuce or strawberries or or whatever it is. And and her tying all of that labor and you, Paola, as interlocutor, Mm. tying that labor, that sweat, that movement back to dignity, Uh back to humanity. And mm-hmm. now as a politician, she takes those lessons with her and embeds that sense of humanity and dignity as policy. Right. Well, that is movement. It is right. legislative movement. Uh, and it's really just incredible to hear. It's so interesting to me, you know, when she talks about who climate change affects the most. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's a lens that we really need to think about that that I don't think people think about often enough. Yeah. Who is this climate change really affecting? And it That's right. made me think about something that I read about regenerative systems. It's this study from the University of, of Kansas, and it talks about interdisciplinarity um, and about the complex world and how we can kind of think of re- creating a regenerative global community. And it says, for example, imagine a healthy and beautiful city that generates its own renewable energy, returns all water back to nature, cleaner than when it arrived, operates mm-hmm. without waste, protects and regenerates natural systems and species. Mm-hmm. And this idea of mm-hmm. like trying to impose that thought onto our artistic systems. Mm. Right? What, is, what would it, it look like if we were creating artistic systems that were, you know, that were, were reflecting society, but regenerating also and giving back? Yeah. And it just, it was interesting because that model made me really think about how can we, how can we heal? Yeah. Mm. That, that, I mean, that is the gospel of our podcast in so many ways, right? The public healing, the healing mm. apparatus, yeah. the culture right. as part of an integrative medicinal system, the infrastructure of hope, the infrastructure right. of inspiration as healing agent. All of that is ecological. Yeah, that's right. All of it is a, yeah. um, sure. is a cycle. I love that you're pointing that out. And both of them said something mm-hmm. that I really need to think about deeply which is that I have always believed that if I architect something, it can happen. Mm. But really what needs to happen is that we need to take one step at a time. Sure. Mm. And that change, especially in moments like this, actually have to happen 
not slowly in that we'll put it off, but mm -hmm. actually methodically where there is a, a culture of collaboration that's built mm -hmm. that where you have to learn each other's mm -hmm. languages, which I think is very mm -hmm. germane to the border, right? Which is mm -hmm. that when you have such different life experiences, you may not speak that same language. Well, you have to sure. set up a system that is going to have to be modular and it's going to have to change and it's going to look messy. Mm -hmm. And you have to live in that broth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, then, and then somehow in the midst of all that mess, right? right. There is kernels of beauty that mm -hmm. exudes from the yeah. stew. Yeah. Right? Somehow yeah. in the midst somehow. of all of that. Yeah. And that's, those are those moments, right? That, that's that keep you going. Yeah. We want to transition you know, we're, we're talking movement, we're talking movements, we're talking borders, we're talking journeys. Mm. And we wanted to cite one of our favorite authors, Isabel Wilkerson, mm -hmm. and her seminal work, The Warmth of Other Sons, and talk a little bit about the, the migrant's journey or the immigrant's journey from the kind of launching point of hope. There are many species that move for survival. Humans also are species that move for survival, but very often they're, they move out of a kind of optimism huh. that there might be something better on the mm -hmm. other side of the journey. And for many people who left the South after being imported as enslaved people here, generations later, there was the liberty to move in search of something. Wilkerson writes, many of the people who left the South never exactly sat their children down to tell them these things, tell them what happened and why they left and how they and all this bloodkin came to be in this northern city or western suburb, or why they speak like melted butter and their mm. children speak like footsteps on pavement, prim and proper, or clipped and fast like the new world itself. Some spoke of specific and certain evils. Some lived in tight-lipped and cheerful denial. Others simply had no desire to relive what they had already left. The facts of their lives unfurled over the generations like an overwrapped present, a secret told in syllables. Mm. Sometimes the migrants dropped puzzle pieces from the past while folding the laundry or stirring the cornbread, and the children would listen between cereal commercials and not truly understand until they grew up and had children and troubles of their own. And the ones who had half-listened would scold and kick themselves that they had not paid better attention when they had the chance. <laughs> Wilkerson's words are truly a balm, a solve in this moment as we think about migrations, as we think about movement. You know, she's influenced so much and so many. I mean, this book was obviously critically acclaimed, but in a really succinct and broad way to the very epic story. We want to share another piece that was influenced by Wilkerson's words. This piece, Warmth of Other Suns, is the work of the artist, composer Carlos Simon. This was a piece that was commissioned by the Sphinx organization. But let's share a little bit of that piece as well.
love it. Such depth and mm-hmm. what a journey. Um, yeah. I think we've, we've, we felt moving through that mm-hmm. piece. Mm-hmm. And not for nothing, man, there's, there's a long history of black folk in classical music, but you want to talk about a journey? Oof. Yeah. And talk about yeah. the, well, the, and the Jesse capture. Montgomery, the first, uh, you know, black woman at the Chicago Symphony, is composer mm-hmm. in residence. It's a, it's, mm-hmm. it's been, yeah, mm-hmm. tragically slow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Carlos Simon himself is just named the composer in residence at the Kennedy Center. Mm-hmm. That um, piece was exquisite. And this idea of secrecy that gets passed mm-hmm. on through generations. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what does that do to protect the next generation? And I'm, I'm curious, mm-hmm. Camila, if you could mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that in terms mm-hmm. of perhaps your own experience or just, mm-hmm. you know, your understanding of yeah. it. Well, you know, thinking about the peace, thinking about secrecy and thinking about the migrant movement, you know, immigration or, or, or migration, it takes a great deal of courage mm-hmm. and flexibility. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, how do we make ourselves lighter for the journey? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> wow. That's what powerful. do we leave behind? Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what might be too heavy of a burden mm-hmm. to carry along this, what is already a treacherous journey? Mm-hmm. And and just thinking about even just my own family stories just recently, I was on a, another podcast about lineage and I thought I was sharing what I, what I knew was the truth <laughs> about, <laughs> about who my great grandparents were mm-hmm. <laughs> until my mother heard it and corrected me. <laughs> and I was like, but I, I, I never knew that. Um, and she said, yes, because we never told you, mm-hmm. you know, and it was it was a, a, a secret that could have been shrouded in shame. Right. And I think it was an effort to protect well, an effort to be made light. Right. Um, mm. As future generations to be made light for your own journey. Hmm. Yeah. And the the secrets that we um, we've used words like shame and also yeah. words like dignity. We've yeah. Talked about barbed wire right. and razor wire. We've also talked about humanity and freedom mm. and inherent in this podcast, this discussion, you incredible women, our various family journeys, in, inherent in all of this is a yearning for freedom. Mm. Mm. People want better. Better actually is part of the kind of genetic impulse to survive. Mm. For some of us, to survive means standing still. Yeah. But for many of us, survival means moving to the next and being chased, mm-hmm. impelled by the wind of your family history to mm-hmm. get us a little bit further. That's right. And as parents, we may not be fully doing our jobs mm-hmm. if we kind of engender among our children a propensity to be satisfied with with where they are. And as leaders, we're definitely not doing our job if we're not pushing our institutions to be better than when we found them. Right. And I'm curious, you know, put it to both of you, what do we see as some of the applicable tools Mm -hmm. in some of the stories that we've heard today about borders and Mm -hmm. crossing and secrecy that we can translate to our life as artists and Mm. leaders. Mm. To me, it's the notion, um, particularly that Mayor uh, Regina Romero, that her DNA became policy Mm. and having Mm. that amount of faith and fortitude in her leadership, in her voice, in her legacy, right? Um, I, that was extremely powerful to me and something I think I'm now even searching for, you know, where what is it that I'm bringing? Me, personally, my journey, my in, within my DNA that I'm bringing to um, affect my own style of leadership and or institution. It's a big question. That is powerful. And then I think for me, I, I'm remembering the story of Evan Corey and the studio that was opened up at the border and this notion of art at a charged and contested intersection mm-hmm. that the kind of most 
important and urgent art mm-hmm. is birthed under pressure. Mm-hmm. That comes out of the stress of the things that are closing in around it. And what artists do is they find themselves in these charged places and make beauty mm-hmm. out of contested sites. That is so beautiful. Paula, how about you? Oh, last night I went to go see my first show. I had had one, like my own string quartet perform, but it it was not in New York City. And to me, living in New York City is about music. You know, it's like I, I, this is why I can be here and not in nature. And it's that I get to be around music. And so I went to see a show and somebody came up to me and they said, so when is National Sawdust opening? (laughs) I was like, oh my God. I was like, we haven't closed. I mean, we've been doing art since like March, you know, like we haven't closed, but they want to know when the doors are opening. And I was just thinking, I don't know when it's going to open because what I implore institutions to do right now, and I'm not talking to both of you, but, but institutions that are legacy institutions is that this is the time to take time and to recalibrate and to mm. not come back the way we were. And so I think that idea of like change one step at a time, but also like really thinking about who your community is and why you're doing it. And if you're the right person to do it. Mm-hmm. And these it. are questions that, that white people in power have to ask themselves, not to escape yeah. and to like give the problem sure. to somebody else. Right. Because that's also, but to say, what does it really mean to thread community? What is yeah. it? What would it mean to build a city yeah. that could regenerate itself? Well, let's mm. impose that on an institution. Yeah. So that's kind of, I think, what I took from all of this, right? Which is that we're at this really big intersection and, and um, yeah, and there's a lot to think about in all these, these beautiful, beautiful images that are running in my mind. Well, with that being said, Paula, I mean, it's apropos ending on that. Um, I just want to thank you both, Paula and Mark, for your brilliance today um, in the conversation, and Paula particularly for um, opening yes. up your world to us. Um, yes. That was really brilliant. Um, and thank you to our featured guest, Mayor Regina Romero and Evan Corey. Today, you heard excerpts from The Colorado, directed by Murat Iubolia, and composed by Paula Prestini, performed by Roomful of Teeth. Glenn Kochi and Jeffrey Ziegler. Gracias a la Vida by Violeta Parra, performed by Magos Herrera, Ed Simon, Adam Cruz, and Joe Morton at National Sawdust. Passages by Vijay Iyer and Wadada Leo Smith, performed live at National Sawdust. And Warmth from Other Sons by Carlos Simon, performed by the Met Orchestra musicians Angela Kiwen Shen. Julia Choi, Chihiro Allen, and Julia Bruskin. Our producer is Sapir Rosenblatt, and our project manager is Paige Lester. On behalf of my co-hosts, Paola Prestini and Mark Bamuti-Joseph, I'm Camila Forbes, and this is Active Hope. Thank you for listening. <laughs>